0: Well, as we now approach the worship of our great God through the study of His Word, and in a short time, our time around the communion table, I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and open them to our study of Luke's Gospel. We are focusing our attention this morning on verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And I want to just simply read these verses for us and then we'll begin our time together. Luke writes this Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was open. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved Son, in You I am well pleased. Let's just ask the Lord to honor this time. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You even that every point, every jot and tittle, even the smallest period is ordained by You and has been given by the inspiration of the Spirit, that it is God-breathed and that it is profitable for us. And so this morning we desire that profit. We desire it to be for our good, for your glory, for us to know you more and to know our Savior more. And by that, be more like him in how we live. So use this this morning in our lives in that way, we pray. Christ's name. Amen. From Luke's inspired hand to our ears, this is a very matter-of-fact, plain and simple accounting for us, and yet it speaks of some pretty amazing things taking place. Maybe not what we might think on the surface, because it is speaking here of what is clear in the passage, the baptism of Jesus Christ. Luke has, of course, been writing about John's life and ministry, that is, John the Baptizer, or John who we know as the Baptist, not because of his theological reality, but simply because of what he came to do. And Luke is now turning his sights on the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the first event in the public ministry of Jesus Christ is the baptism of Jesus Christ. If you have ever had your curiosity raised about something and questions begin to flood into your mind when you look at the Scriptures in particular, then these Verses Surely cause your mind to begin to flood with curious questions. Because Luke, in writing to his friend Gentile named Theophilus, as we saw back in chapter 1, Luke gives just enough information about the event that is happening here to cause the curiosity of the reader to be raised... To cure cause you and I, even two thousand plus years later, to have questions come into our mind about what is taking place, and I suspect simply because you are astute thinking people that curiosity is raised in your mind because of the significance of what john 's baptism represented, Luke tells us in verse 21, now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. Simple enough. And yet when we read those words, when we look at that text itself, our ears begin to perk up and questions begin to come to our mind because we remember the significance of John's baptism for those who came to be baptized. In fact, we spent several weeks even looking at this in our own study. To just go back for a moment to verse 3, it says that John came into the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is significant for us to think about. John was preaching a baptism of repentance so that those who were baptized might realize the reality of the forgiveness of sins in their life. And so, the following verses from verse 3, we see that many are coming to John and they are confessing their sin. So at the very surface, as you look at this, at least two very significant things are taking place in the hearts of those individuals who are coming to John in order to be baptized. First, there is a turning from sin, that is what repentance is, a turning from sin, it's the acknowledgement in their own heart and mind and thereby with their practice that they are a sinner, that they are in fact one who has issues in their own heart between them and God. And secondly, what is taking place is that there is a confession that is happening that leads them to this very public act of baptism, which through they are identified as the person who is the sinful one who is confessing that sin in their life. Those who came were people who, at least in some public way, were in agreement with God's assessment of who they were by way of His holiness and them being unholy before Him, that they were confessing in a public fashion that they were, in fact, unrighteous. Now, we can't be sure as to every person who came, their hearts, and what was going on, as to whether they were genuinely changed or not. Some surely were coming. They were joining the crowd, even though in their own hearts there was no change. They may have slid underneath the radar, so to speak, even getting past the scrutiny of John, because he certainly was scrutinizing some, as it tells us here in verse 8 or verse 7 you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. In other words, if you're okay with God and it's by your own ritualistic religious activity, then who warned you that you were not okay with God and you are thereby trying to flee that wrath that's coming upon you because you're not okay with God and you're coming out here to do this as another religious activity? So certainly John was challenging people with those kinds of words, and some would have slipped under the radar. So not everyone here is truly repentant, but nonetheless, many were coming in response to the preaching of John in true repentance concerning their very unrighteousness before God. And then, as if it really doesn't seem all that significant at all, at least by way of the narrative and the information we are provided, you get to verse 21, and Luke simply says, now it came about when all the people were baptized, that is when along the same time, it isn't as if all of them were baptized, and then at the end, Jesus came. That's not what the grammar indicates here. It simply indicates that while all the people were being baptized, Jesus also was amongst them that Jesus was also baptized. Knowing that background and knowing what we've learned already in chapter 3, doesn't that leave you a bit curious? Doesn't that leave your own heart and mind as you think about this and state of who Jesus Christ is, at least of what you know He to be, as to why I mean, that's what we should write in our margin. Why? This passage concerning the baptism of Jesus and the one to follow, which is in chapter 4. Of course, you say that's not the one to follow. Verse 23 through verse 38 has this long line of names, which we will cover in a couple of weeks. That's not the next event. That's just the recounting of Luke about who Jesus is, but the next event is in chapter 4, which is the temptation of Jesus. Both of those events have caused no small stir within evangelicalism over the years, particularly the early Christian church. And maybe we have never really thought about it much in our own hearts as we think about the Bible, but at first glance... The passage seems to be saying, at least by way of some kind of strange implication, that Jesus must have submitted himself to the baptism of John because he too had sin to repent of. I mean, that's why John came to baptize. It's clear from verse 3 of chapter 3 that his ministry was a ministry of the Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, and here is Jesus coming to be baptized. Is Luke trying to say to us that Jesus came because he too had sin to repent of? If so, if Jesus needed to repent of anything, then that alone has massive theological implications, doesn't it? to say the least, for our own salvation. If Jesus had something to repent of, if Jesus was a sinner, then that creates quite a problem for our theological understanding of salvation. Why? Because God requires a perfect sacrifice. And since Jesus died for sinners like us, if he was a sinner like us in actuality, if he was also in need of some kind of repentance and thereby forgiveness, then he could never have satisfied the righteousness of God in himself. So if repentance is the reason for Jesus' baptism, then he could not be God because God is sinless. God is perfect. And furthermore, even in the short context with which we have here in Luke, just this one phrase at the beginning of verse 21, because after that you have other things that are taking place within this baptism, If it's that, then in the short context, it doesn't even fit in that context to think that Jesus was a sinner because as we've already learned from chapter 1 and also from even the words in verse here, verses 21 and then verse 22, that Jesus is God Himself. The prophecy of Jesus' conception back in chapter 1 as well as the words here show that He is the Son of God. By the way, that term theologically simply means equal in essence to God. In every way, he is God eternal. So it would be an absolute contradiction for Luke or any of the gospel writers for that matter to be suggesting that Jesus Christ must repent of sin. So anybody who ever says that, you know right out of the gate, that's false words. That's heresy. So why then did Jesus come to be baptized? That still doesn't solve the issue in our mind. It doesn't solve the problem. If He did not need to repent or be forgiven of anything, then why be baptized? Well, fortunately for us, God has not left us without answer. God illuminates this very account of the baptism of Jesus Christ in the other Gospels. And so this morning... I want us to go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Why? Because I want us to have an understanding. I want us to gain an understanding of, what it, of what's taking place here as Jesus joins, as I have entitled our message, the back-to-God movement. The back-to-God movement. Remember, John came in order to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. This is a a movement of bringing people back to God. Jesus, in some earthly way, is tongue-in-cheekly, in in my words, joining that back-to-God movement. And so both this week and next week, I want us to see from this text why Jesus is being baptized, but also see that each person of the Godhead is involved in authenticating that this one who came to be baptized is indeed the very Savior of the world. So there is then the baptism of the Son of God in this text. There is the divine anointing by the Spirit of God, and there is the complete satisfaction of the Father in the Son. So all three members of the Godhead are involved here. You want a picture of the Trinity coming to work together in one in unison? The baptism of Jesus Christ is a great place for us to look. So this is the baptism of Jesus. So let's just take that aspect first this morning. The baptism of the Son of God, as we see in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, the first part. And let's just look at that in a more expanded understanding here in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Matthew says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. It really isn't for us historically clear in any of the Gospels the exact chronological time that this baptism took place. In fact, history doesn't give us any precision to that very moment itself the closest we can even get is back in Luke's gospel when it tells us when John the Baptist's ministry began. Right? We know from the accounts of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus that John was about 6 months older than Jesus and we also know that Jesus begins his public ministry around 30 years old. It says that beginning in Luke chapter 3 verse 24 or 23 and following. And so we also know, however, according to Jewish history, that 30 seemed to be the age when a religious teacher would begin their ministry, around the age of 30 years old. So you get some details in Luke about those things back in Luke chapter 3, where where we know that Tiberius Caesar began his reign in this and John the Baptist started his ministry under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We know from history when Tiberius Caesar began to reign, which was about AD 29 or 30, and it would have been about 6 months to a year before Christ came to John. And so John's ministry had to be going on and it and it only lasted a very short time. And so his job is to simply announce the Messiah and to, to decrease off the scene, just like he says as John records for us in John chapter 3, and verse 30, I must decrease, he must increase. That was the words of John the Baptist. So it would have been more likely to be John's on the scene for probably about six months and then Jesus comes to be baptized. And we know that Jesus came to John From the north, from Galilee, it says here in Matthew, in Mark's gospel, it says he came from Nazareth in Galilee, which certainly would match where he had grown up. We know about Nazareth. It was somewhat of a backwoods small town up in the north. And yet it was by no means a town that was out of the loop of the information that would have been crossing the country at any given time because it was a, a a town whereby the north-south roads would go and the east-west roads would pass through Nazareth. So all the information that was going on would have passed by way of mouth through Nazareth. And so John's ministry certainly would have been known uh up north, and particularly it would have been known in the family by which Jesus was because John was his cousin. So John's response says a whole lot about Jesus Christ. John's response here to the baptism of his cousin says a whole lot because John's response reflects the very question in our mind that we are asking this morning. Why are you coming to be baptized? Right? He says in verse 14, John tries to prevent him. I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me for baptism? John's got the same question in his mind. The idea of Jesus being baptized was out of the realm of reality, even to the one doing the baptisms. He knew who Jesus was in his human life, but he also understood who Jesus actually is. He knew that this one standing with him was God's chosen one. In fact, he even acknowledges that in John 1, when John records as Jesus is walking by, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. John 1, verse 29. So John knew these things, and so John says to Jesus, in essence, I can't baptize you. This is crazy. If anyone is to be baptized, it needs to be me, and it needs to be me by you. Right? That's the same confusion we have. If we were there, if we were in John's place, we'd be asking the same question. Hey, listen, this is kind of strange to me. You be baptized? That's... You're, you're sinless. What do you mean? This is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Only people who are acknowledging their sinfulness need this baptism. Seems rather strange. John needed baptism, not Jesus. So, so one thing is for certain as we think about the passage in Luke and as we look at for further illumination through Matthew's gospel the one undeniable thing that John is declaring through his words by his reluctance to baptize Jesus is that Jesus is sinless John says i don't you don't need to be baptized why you're sinless that's that's certainly what he is saying in his words you have no need to repent. John wasn't turning people away who were coming to him simply because they they were in their condition somehow right. John turned no one away who would acknowledge their sin, and he challenged those who came for the wrong reasons. But Jesus had no sin. Jesus had no need of forgiveness. And John tries to turn him away. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus answers and says to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So, Why would Christ, who knew better than anyone on earth that he was sinless, why would he desire and even insist on being baptized? It's interesting when you read through commentaries and church history, some of the answers people have given in attempts to try to answer that question. Some have talked about the anointing that a priest goes through in their official time when they're being set apart to the priestly office and how they are anointed with oil and all of these kinds of ceremonial practices and some have tried to equate that and and bring all of that that understanding from the Old Testament and other places and and pointed into and and fill up this text with all that kind of information. But there is nothing here in this text that would indicate, or even in the other Gospels, that it would indicate that that's what's happening here. So you can't readily run to that because there's nothing in the context that would lead us in that direction. Others have suggested that Jesus came in in the same way that a Gentile convert might come into Judaism and have to go through a ceremonial process of of doing these religious activities, even ritual baptism, symbolizing some kind of cleansing. So that that must be what Jesus is doing here. But again, there's no indication of that kind of thing happening in the text. And why would a Jew need to do that anyway? Some have said that Jesus is simply submitting to the God-given authority of John. In other words, because John is the preacher, because John has been sent out as the one to go before, that Jesus is just willfully submitting to the authority of John, and yet if that's the case here in this text, then I don't believe that John would have tried so vigorously to prevent him from that. And yet it says John tried to prevent him. So if John was just understanding his position and Jesus was understanding John's position and submitting to that, John would have never said, hey, listen, you don't need to do this. Some have even tried to say that it was because he wanted to be accepted as a teacher. That because Jesus had this inherent desire to be accepted as one who was going out as a teacher among the people, that he too was coming to do that in a submissive way. He was coming to, to be baptized with the people so that they wouldn't have anything to point a finger at him about when he started teaching. All of those are interesting speculations, but none of them supported by the context of any of the Gospels. The best explanation that we have for why Jesus came to be baptized are found in the very words of Jesus Christ Himself when He answers John. Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all unrighteousness. In other words, Jesus' answer agrees with John. Jesus' answer agrees with John's words. I have a need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Jesus is saying in essence to John, listen, John, I know who I am. I know that I'm the sinless one, and I know I have no need of repentance, but permit it at this time, in other words, permit it just this one time, because in doing so, the plan of God is perfectly being fulfilled. In other words, Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father was, and must be, beloved, perfect obedience. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ, in His humanity, must have perfect obedience to the Father. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, tells us that He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the whole law. And so, it seems best to understand the baptism of Jesus Christ first as a picture of obedience. First as a picture of obedience. In other words, He is the sinless Savior of the world. He recognizes that. He knows that. He knew that He had no earthly obligation to be baptized he had no more of an earthly obligation to be baptized than he did for having to pay taxes to a government in which he has established. But in obedience to the will of God the Father, it's right for him to do it. We could really in some ways say the same thing as Christians. right? As Christians, we are aliens and strangers on this earth. This earth is not our home. This is not our permanent address. And so, as aliens and strangers on the earth, there is no earthly obligation for us to, by way of an earthly standard, submit to anybody in earthly authority. And yet, we gladly and willingly submit. Why? Because in doing so, we are ultimately and eternally submitting to our Heavenly Father who has established and commanded for us to submit to those who He has placed over us. And so Jesus is a picture of obedience to the will of the Father. So through his baptism, he is confirming that the baptism which John is preaching and which John is carrying out was the will of God under which all men are held accountable. And he was willingly placing himself under that will, even though he himself needed no forgiveness at all. Secondly, secondly, J- Jesus' baptism was a picture of his identification with sin. A picture of his identification with sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that the apostle, or that God, made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, made him who knew no sin, he was sinless, To be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So here's the difference between Jesus, right? When man came to be baptized by John, they were acknowledging their sin. They were coming, confessing their sin. They were repenting. And I believe that when Jesus willingly came, He was identifying Himself with you and I and our sin. He was becoming, in a public, pictured way, as a sinner. In other words, He was being numbered with the transgressors. So this act of service to the Father was the visible, outward act of our sinless Savior being numbered with us, the sinner, the very ones He comes to save. It really ought to astound us that his first act in ministry, think about this, his first act in ministry was to publicly identify himself with sinful humanity. His first public act, baptism, was an identification that like all of us, he was identifying with our sin. One writer said it this way, he who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who was without sin willingly submitted himself to a baptism meant only for sinners. His baptism was a picture of obedience to the will of the Father. It was him obeying what the Father had said and his baptism was a picture of his identification with us. He willingly took his place among us. It's fitting at this time. Third, His baptism was a picture of His coming death and resurrection. It was a picture of His coming death and resurrection. You say, well, I don't see that here. That's true. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 and 38. Jesus describes His death as a Baptism. In fact, I'll just read those verses for us. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 38 says this. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to him saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on the right and one on your left. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? You're not talking about the baptism of John, which happened time before this. The time which we're studying now. No, he's talking about his death. And they said to him, we are, we're able. Jesus said, right, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, you're going to drink. You're going to suffer like I am, right? Father, let this cup pass from me, the sufferings of Christ. You're going to suffer in your life and you're going to die for your." Because you're identified with me, just like I am being baptized into that death. So Jesus' picture through his baptism was such an identification with us that his baptism was a pre-picture for all, for all of us to see that what came upon Christ through our sin was what he accomplished on the cross by his death. Only to be followed by that blessed day that we just celebrated some time ago, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we could say, in a in a scriptural sense, that John's baptism of Christ is a mirror image of what took place on the cross and through the resurrection a death, a burial, and a resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died in our place. He was so identified with us that He took our sin. He he took the penalty that we deserved and He died for us. Certainly, John wouldn't have comprehended all that was taking place theologically, at least through the baptism of Jesus Christ. But, he was willing to submit even then, to Jesus Christ. And He obeyed. Because Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 says, He permitted Him. He permitted Him. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness, proving who He is, letting John know it's okay, we can do this, we're not disobeying the Father. In fact, we're fulfilling the very redemptive plan of the Father. I must do this. This is my obedience to the will of the Father. I must be identified with the people through whom, to whom I am saving. This will fulfill what God has accomplished. And so John permits Him. Luke says it this way, Also, Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized. And the answer to the question why is God graciously gives it to us through the other writers, right? Christ sets the example of obedience for us. Christ willingly identifies with us so that we might through faith be identified with Him in all of glory. His baptism is a picture of what is to come through Christ on the cross. Sacrificial payment for our sin. God was once again authenticating his plan of redemption through the obedience of Jesus Christ. Just like he had authenticated it before, over and over and over again. Go back to Luke chapter 3. And we'll end our time this morning and prepare our hearts for baptism. Luke chapter 3. We just have the simple words. Came about when all the people were baptized. As the people were going out, Jesus also was baptized. Once again, here is God As we've seen in the past through the angel Gabriel coming and making the pre-announcement about Jesus' birth, the pre-announcement about John's birth, the miracle of Zacharias being silenced for nine months, and then his tongue being loose to prophesy about who John would be and the coming of the Messiah, that he would prepare the way, and then Jesus coming on the scene and Jesus being amongst the people and being with the people and being baptized with the people. God is accomplishing, God is authenticating his plan of redemption over and over again, through the very obedience of Jesus Christ, so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. In other words, nothing's left to chance. There's nothing left to chance here. It's not a side note in verse 29, 21. It's not, oh, and by the way, also, just as a side note, Theophilus, Jesus was baptized. No, it says a whole lot more than just that. Why was God incarnate baptized? So that He might completely fulfill the will of the Father and thereby fully identify with you and I who need to be saved. That's why Jesus was baptized. Not because He was a sinner. Not because He was being anointed into the priesthood. Not because He wanted the people to like Him. Simply because for Jesus Christ... The obedience to the will of the Father was the height of His heart and mind in every moment of His human life on this earth. And He was identifying with us whom He was going to save. That's why when He came up out of the water, the other two persons of the Godhead get involved in the scene. Exit stage left, or entrance stage left and right. Here come the other two persons of the Trinity. We'll find out about them next time. Right? The Spirit is there. The Father is there. From that moment on, Jesus is launched into his public ministry. This morning's our time of communion together. Spend our time reveling in the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished. If you are not identified with Christ by faith, if you are not a Christian, this table is not for you. There are some theological circles that will call communion a closed time whereby it's only open to those who are members of a church, people who are formally membership. Some churches will only allow those who are in that category to receive communion. We don't do that here. We have an open communion. We allow you to have your heart before the Lord be recognized. But if you have not repented of your sins, you are not a believer of Jesus Christ, no matter what your words might say. If you have not repented of your sins, you are not forgiven of your sins, and thereby you are not a believer in the truest sense of the word, and so communion is not for you. But we would urge you, we would urge you to come to know Jesus Christ, to believe upon Jesus Christ, to cease from your rebellion against God and confess your sin. Repent of your sin, turn from it, be saved by placing your faith in the only one that could save, Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the baptism of your son. In the physical reality of his baptism, which was so filled with his identification with us and the purity of who he is, the recognition of that before the people, but also with so many other things through the suffering that he would endure and judgment into which he was baptized for the sin of all who believe. He purchased our redemption through His own blood. I dare say there is one of us here this day who knows Jesus Christ by faith, who fully and truly and with sobriety understands to the depth that we need to understand the reality that Christ died for us. What our sin cost. And that you, by your grace, would forgive That you would show yourself to be such that in order to have a people who would glorify and honor you for all eternity, that you must come and save them by your own very life. So Jesus Christ came. Born of a virgin. Walking, living a perfect life without sin. Acceptable to you One who was nailed to a cross, every nail blow was our sin nailing him there. How in the mystery of your own unity as a God in the Father, Son, and the Spirit, how on that very moment you there could be any separation between you is mind boggling to us, and yet we understand that He was forsaken that He was smitten, that He was stricken, that the iniquity of us all fell upon Him and through Him we have life. You were satisfied with Christ. All of that started, Lord, in eternity past when You made a way. The words... Thank you seem rather trivial in comparison to the weight of what it took to save us. And yet here we are, trophies of your grace, simply to say thank you. May our thanks be seen in how we live to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.